0: How do you hear me so far? But you heard me so far. Okay. I need to start over. Sorry about that. So what I am talking about tonight is dimensions of desire. So, 2,600 years ago, Siddhartha, as a young man, sat under the Bodhi tree and undertook what he very much later referred to as a noble quest or a noble search. And it is, I think, very, very important to find a sense of balance here because I know I and many others in this room have a tremendous amount of gratitude and esteem for the Buddha. It's also very important to remember he was a person. And not to always idealize or romanticize him or his life, because then it is too remote from our own. Now, Siddhartha's search, the search that he undertook, was not something particularly unique to him. And if we look across the world, across time, what we hear and read are the stories and the accounts of countless women and men, young and old, who've embarked on very, very similar searches in all cultures and in all traditions, in cloisters, on mountainsides, and in the midst of families and communities, undertaking a quest to understand what it means to live an authentic life, a life that is guided by inner authority and wisdom and is embodied in dignity and compassion and intentionality. Right now, as we sit here, we can be sure there are women sitting doing exactly the same thing in Burmese monasteries villages. We can be sure there are women at this moment doing exactly what we're doing right here in Himalayan caves and in communities. Learning to be still, learning to listen inwardly. Something from a young woman who lived in 14th century India called Dead. She said, "She said, to learn the scriptures is easy, to live them hard. The search for the real is no simple matter. Deep in my looking, the last words vanished, joyous and silent, the waking that met me there. Now, the Buddha's search, I think like all noble searches, began with insight, began with understanding. He saw in his own experience that ultimate security and peace and freedom was not going to be found in the world of conditions. But he also saw that a life of aversion and resistance was not a life of dignity or freedom. Prior to his own awakening, the the Buddha described his own mind as being disquieted, unsettled, unreliable, with just too many things in the world being the gatekeepers of his happiness and well-being. He described that there were just too many thoughts and fabrications and constructions in his own mind that were acting as the gatekeeper of his own well-being and happiness. And he talked about seeing for himself how often he found, had found himself just swept along in his life on waves of habit and impulse and reactivity. And he talked about seeing that for himself that as long as he lived locked into beliefs of insufficiency and craving and a sense of lack, that he was equally going to be locked into a life, an agitated life, a diminished sense of possibility, and in reality an undignified life. These were the insights that brought him to the Bodhi tree. And I think for many of us, it's very similar insights that bring us to a cushion and bring us to a retreat. When the Buddha described this noble search, this path, He described his sense of aspiration of seeking for the unborn, the supreme security and freedom from bondage, searching for a heart and a life free from sorrow and struggle, searching for a sublime peace. Now, I think sometimes when we hear the word noble, or a noble search, we might struggle a little bit to apply it to our experience and what we're doing here, you know, when we're kind of sitting around in sweatpants and looking forward to lunch, you know, and lost in fantasy and, you know, just doing our best to find a breath or two. You know, it actually, we wouldn't always think about it as being that noble. You know, our our noble feels a kind of slightly too dramatic, we might say, or slightly overstated sense of how we feel that we're doing here. Yet, by all accounts, Siddhartha did not sit under the Bodhi tree with just sublime thoughts gracing the world with boundless loving-kindness. No, that's not what he sat with. By all accounts, he sat with fantasy. He sat with aversion. He sat with dullness and doubt and uncertainty. But he sat with them. And he looked them in the eye. And he came to know they were not his true home. And he refused to participate in their dance. Now, the word noble is actually better to think of in a verb form as ennobling. Ennobling. And this is a much-used word in this teaching and path. And rather just feeling that somehow we are unworthy of this term or unworthy of this particular word. I think to consider how this sense of ennobling, or this word ennobling, perhaps this is a word that can help us to to reframe our own path. Go underneath the stories, underneath the short-term aspirations, and to reflect upon what we actually long for in our lives. I think most of us do long to know what it means to live our lives with a, a natural dignity and poise, to have our words and our acts spring from kindness and compassion. I think most of us do long. I think we are united in a longing to be free from fear? And do, not, do we not long to find in ourselves, that, in our own hearts, the root and the source of an unshakable peace and freedom and truly actually to be the gatekeeper of our own hearts and the gatekeeper of our own happiness and to know then how to live in harmony with others. Do we not find ourselves longing to find inwardly the courage and the fearlessness that will allow us to meet this world with its ocean of pain and sorrow and struggle, with wise action and with grace? The awakening that the Buddha described was... Not some, necessarily some mystical entry into a transcendent domain where access was permitted only to a particular few with the right visa. It's not the US. <laughs> <laughs> but the Buddha put it as I am, you are, as you are am I. As I am, you are. As you are, so am I. Underneath the Bodhi tree, the Buddha really simply came to see things the way they actually are, born of conditions, changing, and empty of self. And in that, he came to know the end of struggle and anguish. The Buddha awakened to an inner sense of freedom and sufficiency. And in that he saw the end of lack and the end of all beliefs in insufficiency. And he described this as a radical change of heart. And the the way that he described or, or framed this radical change of heart were, of course, in the four ennobling truths that there is indeed struggle and sorrow in this life. There is disquiet. There is an origin to suffering, a cause of suffering. There is an end of suffering, and there is a path to its end. And to live in the light of understanding those four ennobling truths is to discover an inner nobility and to be able to live a noble life. And when he talked about these four ennobling truths, he spoke about them as an invitation to us all to understand them, to find indeed within ourselves that radical change of heart and indeed our life. Now these four ennobling truths were not statements of belief They're not kind of statements of ideology to be adopted or believed in or subscribed to. Instead, the Buddha presented these four ennobling truths as a call to action. As a call to action. He said suffering is to be understood. The causes of suffering are to be investigated and to let go of. The end of suffering is to be realized, and the path to the end of suffering is to be cultivated and embodied. And he said that to answer this call will bring the end of discontent and will bring a natural authenticity and authority to our lives that to really answer this call will bring about an unhesitating compassion and response, responsiveness, to all of life around us. When the Buddha spoke about these four ennobling truths and the radical change that they truly can bring about, he was very clear that these understandings were not necessarily meant to console us, but to challenge us but to challenge us, to challenge our own understanding, to invite us and challenge us to actually change the shape of our own minds and hearts. So this evening I want to look at the, primarily at the causes of suffering and to look at the dimensions of desire and in a way also at the paradox of desire. To look at the way that craving is a servant of the belief in insufficiency. And the way that craving, rather than calming and easing the belief in insufficiency, instead only strengthens it. Now, when we hear, you know, there's this kind of association, I think, in Buddhist circles, which I think is incorrect, you know. Because the, when we hear the word desire used, I think, often in, in Buddhist circles particularly, it's often kind of heard or interpreted as being a sort of blanket condemnation of any form of longing. But that is a misunderstanding of what the Buddha talked about. So I'd like to un- unpack a little bit. This, this world of desire, this domain of desire. And to look at some of its dimensions. First of all, there are the desires that can be answered. There are the desires that can be answered. they are actually the desires that are necessary to get us through this life. You know, you see a rattlesnake on the path... You have the desire to steer clear, I hope. (laughs) You have the desire not to be hurt. Your body sends you messages of hunger or thirst and you respond. It might pour down with rain and you take shelter. These are simple acts of responding to desires that protect the well-being of our bodies. Excuse me. You see a child about to jump off a cliff. It's not that helpful just to say seeing, seeing. (laughs) You You reach out. You reach out to, to help them. These are momentary desires that arise and pass. They're the fabric of caring for the body. They're the fabric of caring for life. And you notice, this is the realm of desire. Answerable, and it doesn't leave any residues in the mind, really, does it? I mean, you know, you take a drink of water, you don't need to go into a big story about, you know, if I was a better person, I wouldn't have taken that drink of water when I was thirsty. (laughs) There's another realm of desire. The Pali word for this is chanda. These are the wholesome, or in Pali, kusala longings that are translated into action. Now, chanda is also a realm of desire, these wholesome longings that can be answered. They're the longings that bring it, bring us here. The longings to know a great kindness and spaciousness and compassion. The longing for authenticity, the longing for connectedness, and freedom from pain. These longings are not only part of a kind of spiritual quest. They are, of course, part and parcel of every great social and cultural revolution and change that has ever happened in our world. Whether it's the ending of apartheid, or the ending of injustice, or the ending of of child slavery, all of this is born of this wholesome kusala, longing, desire, or chanda. We, I think, as women, often can easily take it for granted, this situation of, you know, signing up for a women's retreat, you know, and you just pay your deposit and turn up. I think it's really important to appreciate that our, our capacity to do this is the result, quite frankly, of Thousands of years of women's aspirations. And not only that, a lot of work. And if you would appreciate that in there are places in the world still, in Buddhist countries, where it is illegal to be a nun. You know, and where you would certainly not find this kind of situation of women having this just kind of authority just to decide that we gather together and have a retreat. It is something to appreciate that much of that which is truly a blessing in our lives has been born of a lineage of longings. And we are part also of a lineage of longings for those who come after us. Woven into our culture, woven into our societies, woven into our communities... This sense of chanda or wholesome desire is what brings us here and is actually something to honor and respect. They ennoble our lives and they ennoble the lives of others. Those noble, Those, those noble longings, in a way, it's almost important to clarify them in our own hearts because they give shape and direction to our path. But it's also true that those longings, those very wholesome longings, can so easily get drowned out, can't they, by our daily preoccupations and our busyness, which actually can almost create a sense of amnesia in our lives, you know, of, you know, what is it all about, you know? What do we deeply value? What are we dedicated to? What do we place at the center of our lives and gather our lives around? And there is something, I think, for all of us that that is a challenge for us, to, to keep in the forefront of our hearts that which is a, you know, truly a noble longing. Longing. Because they are the longings that take us out of our palaces of familiarity and habit and illusion. Those are the longings that help us to stop and to question what are we dedicated to? What are we most deeply valuing? Without these longings really clear in our hearts, and more than just clear in our hearts, translated into intentionality and embodying in our lives, it is just so easy to become lost in forgetfulness. Again, just like the Buddha said, you know, finding himself swept along day to day in a tide of doing and hoping and obsessing and trying to arrange our world as much as possible to protect ourselves from what we dislike or fear or feel unable to be with, lost in habit. And you know what? That happens, I think, very easily. It's not something to judge or blame. But then isn't it true in all of our lives that then we may be in that place of forgetfulness, and then along comes something that the only certainty in this life, that we are reminded that the only certainty in this life is that we will die. And then sometimes we are startled into wakefulness and actually acknowledge it reminds us to value the manner of our living above all else. Our longings, the kusala desires, the chanda, are really here to remind us of what is possible. And in a way, this this is the promise of this teaching. It is actually a promise of this teaching and this path that the seeds of great compassion and wakefulness really do lie within each of our hearts without exception and that they await our cultivation, our willingness to tend to those seeds of profound dignity and poise and freedom. But the longings, the kusala, the chanda, the kusala longings, the chanda, also do need to be translated into something more substantial than just hope or idealized thinking, but into a path. And as I mentioned on the very first night of this retreat, the Buddha really taught how to live an awakened life. Translated into a path, that ennobles our lives. Again, these are desires that lead to the end of desire. These are the desires that can be answered. One of the most much beloved early uh, texts of this of the of this teaching has this wonderful uh, couple of lines that I I really sort of taken to heart, I must say, recently. It goes that all that we are now is a result of what we were. All that we will be tomorrow, even the next moment, will will be a result of all that we are now. I find that quite remarkable. All that we are now is a result of what we were. We see that when we sit and walk, don't we? We see the ripples of our past, the ripples of memory, the imprints of all of the people in our lives, you know, the imprints of all the experiences we've had in the past, rippling into our present and forming our sense of who we are now. I think that becomes so clear to us. But it is the next line that is deep just as important that all where we will be tomorrow or even in the next moment will be a result of all that we are now. Because what what this is really pointing to is that every moment in our lives is potentially a turning point. That every moment in our lives is potentially a a moment of walking new pathways of freedom, of compassion, of kindness. That every moment in our lives where there is awareness and investigation and mindfulness is potentially an invitation to really deeply look at where we're making our home. In calmness or in busyness, in anxiety or simplicity, in aversion, or kindness, in perpetuating suffering, or ending suffering. For us, too, like the Buddha, the end of suffering does not lie in some impossible, unattainable, breakthrough moment. There is something much more immediate than that about the teaching of liberation, about the teaching of bringing about the end of struggle and suffering. It's important to remind ourselves of that again and again. I, I personally am continually awed. After many, many years of teaching, I continue to be awed and amazed. By the level and the profundity of change and transformation that people can experience in the short period time of a retreat, that continues to startle me. And it's not because it's geographical, you know. It's not because, uh, yeah, it's not because we're here. It is simply born of your own intentionality, your own effort, your own sincerity. Everything that you nurture within yourself. And when we think about how much change, how much understanding, how much depth can be brought about in just such a short time, think of yourself today, think of yourself on the first morning of the retreat. Probably a few things are starting to shift. Hmm? Hasn't been very long. But there has been a great deal of sincerity and intentionality. And what we are really learning to do here is to liberate the moment. We're learning how it's possible in moments to move from contractedness to spaciousness, from agitation to ease, from confusion to understanding. It's not as if in a few days we find the answer to every life, every one of our life's dilemmas, or, you know, solve every issue in our life or figure out the answer to every conflicted relationship we live. We don't. That's not what it's about. It is really about the inner shifts in consciousness, the inner shifts in our heart that can happen. We are learning to change the shape of our mind in this moment, to liberate this moment from suffering. There's that that little bit of the poem by Naomi Shihab Nye, which I love... It's about this sense of remembering. And she writes, when someone invites you to a party, remember what parties are like before answering. (laughs) Walk around feeling like a leaf. Know you could tumble any second. Then decide what to do with your time. It's one that, you know, I mean, you could probably see in sitting here how many invita- party invitations you get inwardly. You know, here's an invite to the fantasy party. You know, here's an invite to the planning party. You know, here's an invite to the rumination party. You know, I mean, some of them don't look much like parties. It's true. But, but you know, you see those invites all the time inwardly, don't we? And then we might just remember to walk around feeling like a leaf, knowing what we could, that we could tumble any second. Then decide not only to do what to do with our time, but what to do with our attention. What to do with our attention and to know that there is a choice. Another dimension of desire in Pali is, the word is samvega, samvega it translates as a kind of spiritual urgency. Now, again, I don't think this is necessarily a stranger to any of us. I'm sure all of us have had the moments when we might see a picture or an image of a child dying needlessly of hunger or poverty. And we really see... We really see, and our hearts are disturbed, and they tremble. A person we love may become gravely ill, and unhesitatingly at the forefront of our mind is the wish to reach out and to help and to heal. We are wholeheartedly present in the times in our own lives when our worlds crumble through illness or loss, or a breakdown of trust, these are not the moments we get lost in fantasy. These are the moments where we find you know how important it is to find the courage, to be upright, to find refuge. Some vega is not about the, this sense of spiritual urgency. It's not about haste. It's not about intensity. But it is about the wholeheartedness of of sincerity and commitment to compassion. Again, we know how easy it is. You know, we all have those moments of tremendous wakefulness in our lives, often brought to us by actually conditions that we suddenly realize are not in our control. And then it's easy to forget again, and we think, well, tomorrow's going to be a much better day to be awake. Mm -hmm. There's another little bit of a poem. It says, No past, no future, open mind, open heart, complete attention, no reservations. When the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree, he had a little bit of this going on. In fact, he said, by all accounts, what he says, I am going to sit here until my blood runs cold, if that's what it takes to be awakened. So we'll see you in the middle of the night tonight, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> but samvega, the sense of spiritual urgency, again, is a desire that can be quenched. It's a desire that can be answered. It can open, it can, it can serve to f- enable us to know what it means to embody compassion. So, Vegas a great ally and friend on this path. So, now I want to look at the realm of desire that has no end, the realm of desire that cannot be answered. And the word for this in Pali is unquenchable thirst unquenchable thirst. It's called tanha. And rather than ending suffering, this tanha, this unquenchable desire, just brings more. What I think is very important to see is this craving, which is unquenchable thirst. It is a servant of the belief in insufficiency and it digs the pit of insufficiency a little bit deeper each time we pursued. Tanha is a desire we are asked to question if we really want to be free of suffering. Because tanha, or this unquenchable craving, is what binds us to struggle and to suffering. Rumi, he wrote... Who makes these changes? I shoot an arrow right. It lands left. I ride after a deer and find myself chased by a hog. I plot to get what I want and end up in prison. I dig pits to trap others and fall in myself. I should be suspicious of what I want. If we truly want to bring about the end of suffering, not just emotional and psychological suffering, but indeed the suffering in the world, craving does need to be understood and released. And this is really a radical invitation, sometimes to change not only the shape of our hearts and minds, but indeed the shape of our lives. Because it is an invitation to freedom, To learn that to bring about the end of tanha, craving, is an invitation to peace and sufficiency and the dignity that we long for in our lives. I think it's so important to to really be honest in our knowing and feeling of the landscape of craving and to feel its agitation and painfulness and to know that each moment that we pursue craving, we are actually abandoning our heart's capacity contentment and freedom. And then perhaps if we really see the painfulness, then we begin to be willing to step out of discontent. There's a very closed feedback loop that happens in craving. Believing and feeling a sense of lack and insufficiency in the moment and in ourselves, we search the world for things, for people, for experiences that will end or soothe that sense of lack. And we do have successes occasionally. Occasionally we do get what we want. But they are only momentary successes. And they end. And then once more, we find ourselves aware of a continuing disquiet and a growing hunger. And once more, we go in search of answers. More. More sense impressions. More food. More excitement. More sensations. And lack is reinforced. Really, it's important to see how craving cre- keeps us agitated, because there's different kinds of craving here. It's not just a one, one kind. There is a craving for sensory pleasure, sight, sights, uh, sight, sounds, touch, taste, sensations. Our eyes, our ears, our bodies, our minds become hungry in craving. Even the sense of I is an appetite. You know, the very sense of I, me, is a sense of lack. Prowling the world like looking for the mirage in the desert, believing we can only be happy in the midst of pleasant experience, and that the source of joy lies elsewhere, outside of ourself. And then tying our happiness and unhappiness our success and failure, to what we can get and what we can get rid of. What the Buddha discovered, and what countless women yoginis have through time discovered, is that when we can find the willingness to step out of the fires of craving and discontent, to be still and to cultivate an inner collectedness, what do we discover? and inwardly generated happiness and joy and serenity and stillness, greater than any happiness that can be born of craving. When we learn to be still and collected, we do discover a freedom of heart that is not tied to getting or getting rid of anything. There is, as Narayan mentioned last night, so much in the world that is delightful and lovely. But what we're really cultivating in our practice is our inner capacity to be delighted, our inner capacity to be touched, to be gladdened, to be content, actually, in the midst of all things. It is why so much emphasis is given to sitting and walking, because we're practicing peace we're practicing spaciousness, we're practicing contentment, we're tasting the happiness of our own hearts, and that is a taste of freedom. So the first level of craving is a craving for sensual pleasure. The second one is a craving to become. And this is a weighty craving. I think in our culture we call it self-improvement. The craving to become. Now this is not the same as the wholesome and skillful longings for respect and integrity and creativity that can be realized, that embody what we value, that we most deeply treasure. The craving to become is a different creature. The craving to become someone who is lovable. The craving to become someone who is acceptable. The craving to become someone who is worthy. Resting upon a particular inner belief that we are not any of those things. That we are not enough, not good enough, not worthy enough, not lovable enough. And so we pursue that elsewhere. Through identity, through status, through experience, that tells us that we are worthy. This is an ongoing inner abandonment. It's an ongoing abandonment of acceptance, of compassion, and of the sufficiency of our own hearts. And I think this belief in insufficiency has many manifestations, but it gets really sparked by praise and blame you know we might find ourselves really seeking and hoarding praise you know because that tells us we're we're okay but we might also pursue praise molding ourselves to the expectations of others seeking for approval and affirmation this is this a toxic craving bowing and scraping and what is the effect of that what is the effect of this craving to become you know, the seeking of, of praise and approval. Well, does it ennoble our lives or does it diminish us? If we seek and hoard praise, we're probably going to do the same with blame, except we're not seeking it, but we will certainly hoard it. Hmm? Criticism, judgment, rejection by others is perceived as some kind of ultimate truth about who we are. When we are lost in the craving to become, authenticity, I think, is something that remains very elusive. I can think of hardly other, any other impulse in the craving to become that has become been so detrimental to women's freedom. Because it makes us be at the mercy, at the need for approval and perfection. It's living in fear of failure and rejection. So what do we do in the practice? We become, we start to become increasingly sensitized to the voice of the inner critic and the judge. You know, because that's really what we're also sensitized to outwardly. Is that voice of the inner critic and the judge actually telling us something truthful about ourselves? Or is it telling us something about the ideology of the craving to become someone other than we are? It's the endless story of insufficiency that follows in the footsteps of craving. So what do we do in the practice? We become increasingly sensitive and to question, actually, the story of I and the story of lack. You know what we discover? That in reality, I am not telling the story of insufficiency. But telling the story and believing the story of insufficiency is moment to moment building the story of who I am. That's really important to see that. That I don't get up this morning and decide to tell the story of my insufficiency. But every time the thoughts arise in judgment, in criticism, in blame, in comparison, in evaluation, and I and I entertain those thoughts, and I believe in those thoughts, and I identify with those thoughts, those thoughts are building the story of an insufficient I. That's, that's so key to understand that, that the story is telling us who we are. We are not telling the story. That's, that's something very, you know, because that's very much approachable. I mean, try and, you know, go the other way. Oh, I'm insufficient. You know, how do I get to this I that's insufficient? How do you know that? Except by your thoughts. The thoughts and ideologies that are identified with. The story arises with discontent. You know, it, it revolves around the story of discontent and craving and insufficiency. So we learn about stillness, we learn about quieting, we learn about awareness. I mean because in that we see not only the arising of the story of "I," we see the passing of the story of "I," of me," but we also start to know it's a story. It's a story. It's not a truth. It's, inter- it's, it's, it's useful to see how much selfing and craving and clinging and agitation are all kind of sa- the threads of the same cloth. And if we unravel one, any one of the threads, we start to unravel the whole of the cloth. And we start to unravel the whole of the cloth. The, cre- the c- creativity and the authenticity and the authority, the qualities that ennoble our life, are not born of craving or a perfect self. They're not born of gaining or attaining, but authenticity and inner authority are rediscovered in the coolness of stepping out of agitation and beliefs in insufficiency. The last of the cravings sorry, this is going on a bit The last of the cravings is a craving for non-existence, a craving for non-becoming. It's the third of these cravings that rob our lives of nobility and freedom. Now this you know one part of this is aversion. On more moderate levels, we find this craving for non-existence, in the, all the little moments of resistance and pushing away, the flickers of aversion that lead us to divorce ourselves from what is. Why? Because we fear that we cannot embrace and accommodate discomfort. We feel that we will be overwhelmed, annihilated. So we become protective and defensive. We also become agitated and judgmental and intolerant of ourselves. On a deeper level, this craving for non-existence is a desire to disappear. It's a desire for invisibility. It's a desire to be to annihilate ourselves. Sometimes it just takes a form of seeking numbness to not feel what we are experiencing. Sometimes it's much more agitated in in rage and blame. So again, what are we doing in the practice? We're not judging, craving. That's another kind of craving. We are learning to be alive and upright in our own being, to cultivate and nurture our own capacities for acceptance, and kindness and compassion, seeking the end of suffering moment to moment, finding and learning the lessons of courage. We are almost reteaching our hearts their loveliness. Hmm? We're reteaching our hearts their loveliness. It's almost as if we are re-educating our hearts. Hmm? Reteaching our hearts. Learning to find the courage to face the winds of the difficult With equanimity, including all things. And many of you, I'm not going to read the whole poem, but many of you will be familiar with this part of the poem from Mary Oliver that you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Love what it loves to love your longings. If we understand the causes of suffering and release our hearts from the grip of craving, we will come to know the end of suffering. We will come to know the end of discontent. When the Buddha described the landscape of liberation, he described it as the freedom from the compulsions of craving. And he called this freedom the taste of the Dharma, or the ennobled life. And in our practice, we, we do encourage for ourselves to know that taste of freedom. It's not easy. It's not easy. And the times we stumble are not to be rejected or judged. But we start to know the origins of craving and the beliefs in insufficiency, we start to know the arisings of craving and the passing. And perhaps we start to alert ourselves to all those moments of, of compulsive reaching out or pushing away. And we know that they're a reflex of the belief in insufficiency and lack. And we learn how to still those waves. It's not so much that we let go of craving. But if we cultivate the conditions of kindness, of compassion, of stillness and spaciousness, you know what? Craving lets go of itself. Because we do not crave what we have. We crave what we don't have. And it's knowing, actually, what there is within us, and that is the freedom of being ungoverned. Ungoverned. It's like the little cravings and the big cravings, the little and the big driving compulsions, the little and the great aversions. It's like they are all arms and legs of one body. But the small and the great moments of stillness, you know, the small and the great moments of calm, the small and the great moments of uprightness and spaciousness, of kindness and compassion, these are all also the arms and legs of one body. And that is a body of authenticity and freedom. And that is truly our invitation in this path, is to know that body that really ennobles our heart and ennobles our lives. We take just a moment quietly together. May all beings rest in sufficiency. May all beings taste the freedom of inner sufficiency.